Okay, so we are going to continue in our series through the, uh, that we're calling Roots of a Healthy Church through First and Second Timothy. Today we're going to get into chapter 3 of Second Timothy, so you can open up your Bibles there. Uh, last week, Pastor Aaron talked to us about how God wants us to be useful instruments in his household, and the way that we do that uh, in two specific ways is rightly handling God's word and to pursue spiritual maturity. And in many ways, chapter 3 is going to be a continuation of that same teaching, although in this text, uh, Paul calls it completeness, that maturing of spiritual maturity. So uh, the, the title for this morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to call it A Roadmap to Righteousness, A Roadmap to Righteousness. And as we'll see in a second, as we read through this text of 2 Timothy chapter 3, there's kind of three sections of it. And so in the, in the spirit of last week's rightly dividing the word, uh, let me lay out for you three sections that we're going to break this text into. Verses 1 through 9, Paul lays out the wrong way or a wrong way, an example that we ought not to follow. And then verses 10 through 13, he lays out the right way. Here's an example to follow. And then he concludes this chapter 14 through 17 uh, explaining how to know the difference between the right way and the wrong way. And of course, uh, that is through God's word. But it can be hard at times to know which is the right way, right? Which uh, way we should be going, how should we be living our lives? There are many voices in our culture that are constantly inundating us, right? There's political figures, political commentaries, uh, commentators rather. There's friends and family and social um, people in social positions who are talking to us and giving us all kinds of directions and how to go this way, how to go that way. So there's a lot of voices in our culture. Really, our culture is full of backseat drivers. Have you guys ever experienced the joy of someone backseat driving as you're driving in the car? Um, my beautiful wife, whom I love deeply uh, with an undying affection, um, does not struggle with this. She has no issue with it. <laughs> But early in our relationship, this was a point of contention. Maybe some of you can relate, um, but this is, uh, this is something that often happens. Um, she now is, of course, the, the passenger princess, right? She sits there in the passenger seat. She is the navigator, and she does a great job at this, helping to maintain order in the kids, but with the kids in the car. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's like a biblical um, prerequisite that like men are supposed to drive and women are supposed to be the passengers, but I just feel like that often happens. Of course, that's not always the case. In fact, when I'm in the passenger seat, I feel like it's a, like a vacation. I get to kind of sit back and enjoy. Uh, but anyways, this is, you know, nowadays, of course, we have all these GPS things that are helping us and that kind of thing. But one example that I'll give you um, from early in our relationship, me and Mallory, to kind of highlight what this was like, is one time we went to an outdoor mall there in Southern California, and I don't know why, but we had to take two separate cars, and so we went there in separate cars. And then as we were going home, we had to go home, of course, in our own cars, and I was driving in front of her, she was behind me, and as we're going on the freeway, she gives me a call and says, don't, don't forget to get off at the Van Buren exit. And I was like, okay, which was helpful because I probably would have missed it. But then I thought, so she backseat drove for me from another car. That's like next level backseat driving. Like she is an expert at this. Um, but it, the truth is it was actually really needed because I would have missed the exit. I missed it so many times before. 
Um, but anyways, yeah, and now, of course, we have these, these GPS devices on our phones that help us to get around. Uh, there's all different kinds and stuff like that. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make with all this that is in order to get to the desired destination, the place that we want to be, we have to make sure that we are following the right source of directions, right? What are we looking to? Uh, what maps are we using? What people are we following? Um, the question for us is, who are you following in this journey of life, essentially? Which examples are you following? What maps or guidelines are you looking to to help give you direction in your life and where you are going? In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is teaching us, instructing Timothy and, and you know, by extension, all of us in the church, that there is only one source of true and ultimate truth, and that is the words of God alone. So he's basically saying to avoid the wrong way and follow the right way, we must trust in God's way. To avoid the wrong way and follow the right way, we must trust in God's way. We must depend on the words that God breathed out, we'll see later in this text, if we want to live a righteous life with a hope of eternal joy. So again, he lays out these three sections, the wrong way, the right way, how to know the difference. Let's read the first section together. This is in the beginning of chapter three, starting in verse one, here's what we read. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was to those of those two men. So Paul instructs Timothy that in these last days, times of difficulty are upon us, and that there will be people who can distract and lead us astray, and they must be avoided, right? That's the only real command in this section avoid such people. So he isn't necessarily introducing a new group of people here necessarily. We've been kind of looking at this same pattern amongst many who are in the church. Uh, yet again, they are, these people are in real danger, that there are people who are ensnared by the devil. That's what we saw last, uh, last week, who are here that are leading people astray and distracting them from God. These are some sharp words, no doubt, that the Apostle Paul is laying out here. But let me highlight a few important details maybe from this section that we can think about. First, he begins by talking about the last days. He opens up by saying, in the last days. And let me clarify that, in fact, we are in the last days, just as Paul and Timothy were in the last days. That's pretty clear because Paul tells him to avoid such people. And if this was something that, uh, which means that he would have to avoid people in his current context, not something in the distant future, right? So he's talking about the present age. Also, the Apostle Peter, you might remember in the early chapters of Acts, in the beginning of the, the, the church age, essentially right after Jesus 
fulfilled his earthly ministry and ascended into heaven. The, uh, Peter stands before a big crowd who are watching on as the apostles are being filled with the Holy Spirit and this amazing miraculous event takes place. They're speaking in languages they do not know and people are listening and hearing the truth of God and they're confused. Of course, Peter stands up and he explains to them, he quotes the prophet Joel and he says, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so Peter explains that this is those days. The spirit is being poured out onto all flesh and everyone is speaking about the goodness of God, the gospel, and they are spreading that truth um, all kinds of people. So the last days is essentially the time between Jesus' ascension when he went into heaven bodily and when Jesus, in that last day, when Jesus will return, that second coming of Jesus that we look forward to where he will establish perfect justice, perfect peace, um, a time where there will be no pain or sorrow or suffering and those sorts of things. Uh, but of course, so that is, that is the, in the, we're in the last days. Secondly, the, the next portion of that verse is that these last days will be difficult. Um, he says they're going to be hard, right? Paul wants to encourage Timothy. Uh, things are hard. If they're hard, that's okay. That's the way the world is at the moment between Jesus's first and second coming. And that's hard to hear sometimes, but I think it can be helpful for us if we, if we have a right understanding of the situation that we're in, right? If we have a good understanding of that we're in difficult times, we won't be shocked or caught off guard when things don't go the way that we would hope that they would be going, right? If anything, knowing this fact should make us long for the day when Jesus will come back, when he will set right everything. And of course, in the meantime, to be about the Father's business, serving, loving, spreading the gospel, because a day is coming when he will return. And of course, that's really highlighted in the next chapter, chapter four, which we will get into next week. But of course, that, that hope of things ending in Jesus' Returning is only for those who, who put their faith in God alone, who trust in him and follow in him. Which brings us really to the third thing that I'll highlight from this section is that the people that are in view here, um, really they have a disordered love. And you see this repeated in the text. They have a love of themselves, a love of wealth, a love of uh, uh, their, you know, what pleasure, those sorts of things. So, but they're not lovers of God. So it's really bookended with this idea of where is your affection? Where is your love? And these people are not putting their love on God, but rather on the things that God has created that they enjoy. That is the thing that is guiding them in their life. That's essentially the roadmap that they are following. It's not a genuine love for God, but rather a love for the things that he has created. And while that might be, uh, might work out for a little while, right, eventually it will lead to destruction, right? Because as we saw some weeks ago, nothing gold can stay, right? Those objects that, that, that they're holding onto, that they're hoping will give them um, enjoyment and eternal happiness will not endure forever. But of course, those who trust in God and put their faith in him will endure. We, we do have a, an eternal hope. And so that's an important thing to think. And I think for us, as we're reflecting on this section, it's good to think about where is your love placed? Where is your passions? How are you dedicating the time in the week? Are you spending it? Are you dedicating time to demonstrating your love and affection toward God and his people? 
people and serving those in need? Are you spending your time elsewhere in these other things, in these lesser pursuits? It's an important thing for us to reflect upon as we think about this text. But of course, this is not talking about people who love God truly and at times walk away or, or are struggling or having difficulties in there. That's not what he's saying. These are people who put their whole affection on something other than God. That is very clear in the text. Um, so the fourth thing, though, I'll highlight, and kind of in the middle of this, he brings up these false teachers. There are certain people in this group of, of people who have disordered love who rise to prominence, and really what they do is they prey on the vulnerable people around them, and they're cowardly and self-centered. We see this really in verses 5 through 9. So among this group, right, these, these people rise to prominence, and they're really displaying this disgusting behavior. Uh, Paul compares them to these two characters, Janus and Jambres, or Jambres, I don't, I don't exactly know, I think there's multiple ways to pronounce that, but these two names were actually given to the uh, magicians that were before Pharaoh um, in, the, in the days of Moses. So you may remember last year we studied um, in Exodus chapter 7, these magicians would stand before Moses, before Pharaoh, before the people who are gathered there, and they performed these uh, counterfeit miracles, or maybe even these illusions uh, to fool people to not following or not listening to Moses, who was God's mediator, who was the man of God that God had chosen to lead his people out of slavery. And so they stood before the people and were leading them to believe in their false gods, who primarily was Pharaoh himself, of course, but all of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And so really who they are are these religious swindlers or imposters, as called Paul calls them later in this text, which we'll see in, a, in just a moment. And they were leading people astray. And so now this, this is like a new version of that. They are religious imposters who are leading people away from God's ultimate mediator in the person of Jesus Christ, the God's ultimate man of God, his very son. And so these same people are doing that type of activity. So the, uh, the Israelites, the Hebrew people who are reading this, the Christians, they would know who those names are. But of course, those names aren't mentioned in the, in the text of Exodus, but they are um, in, in historical documents that the, that the Israelites were aware of. So these new versions of these religious swindlers are rising up, and they had an appearance of godliness, but they denied the power of the gospel, as verse 5 says. And they were specifically targeting, like I said, vulnerable people, weak people who were corrupt, or, or they were led astray. They were in a difficult situation. Um, the text specifically calls them weak women, although I don't think that Paul is saying that women are inherently weak or anything. I think what he's saying is these particular people, especially in that social, um, in that societal context, these women were vulnerable. They were in a position where they could be taken advantage of. And I think to some degree, there are still many people in our own society who are in this place where they could be taken advantage of. They're more vulnerable than others. Um, and, and sometimes that tends to be you know, women, perhaps single mothers in a situation where they're struggling, but it could be really anyone in our society who is, who can fall prey easily to these type of um, religious swindlers. And these really, they're cowardly false teachers. They were victimized people, victimizing people like this. 
Um, a few weeks back, we talked about how the church should deal with people like this in our midst, right? These kinds of deceitful people. We saw this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you want to go back and, and listen to that, if you missed that or watch that on YouTube, feel free to do that. Um, but the Bible, the scriptures make it very clear that the right way to deal with people like this is to, first of all, call them out by name. Identify who is doing this and how are they swindling people. Next is to plead with them, to repent, turn away from this evil that you're doing, this victimizing that you're doing to poor people who are believing your lies. Uh, and hopefully they will respond. They will turn from that and they will see the error of their ways. But if they don't, then the Bible tells us, like it says in verse 5, avoid such people, which I think is really in line with what Paul said earlier, which is to, you know, he, the way he put it there was hand them over to Satan. Uh, get them out of your congregation because they are victimizing the weak that are there. And it is up to us as church leaders and as church members to protect one another, to help one another see the error in these false teachers' ways. And the sad truth is that in our society, in our culture, there are many uh, easy victims for these religious swindlers. So it's up to us, again, to be the leaders we need to be and to stand firm on what the scriptures say so that we can help people out of those situations with grace and with truth. And so I think that's an important thing to take note of in this section. So the encouragement for us is to avoid these kinds of people, of course, do not let them lead you astray, but also be like Timothy, be like Paul, stand up and help call those victims uh, out of that situation and lead them into the truth of God's word. Um, so that is the wrong way. That's the example he gives. We need to avoid that way. And then he transitioned, and then he, Paul transitioned and shows Timothy the right way. So let's read the next three verses, starting in verse 10. We read this. You, however, have followed my teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, excuse me, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul shifts the focus again and he, from the people to avoid. And really what he does is he, put him, he puts himself forward and he says, uh, you know, follow my example, am, example, even imitate me. He is saying, avoid those people and be like me, right? And I think if, if we're all honest, this is something that would be difficult for many of us to say to our uh, friends here at the church, right? I don't, I don't know if I would be so quick to say, you know what, man, you should be like me, right? That just kind of, it, it sort of strikes us a little strange, but Paul is not being arrogant here in the least. He's not being arrogant. If anything, he's being a courageous leader and he's standing up and he's taking responsibility for his actions and he's saying, I am a person that you can follow, which to me is inspiring and it's also very humbling to think on myself, my leadership, is this something that I would be able to say? And so maybe one question that we all should be asking ourselves if we're following the Lord, if we're following this right way, am I a person that others could follow and they would be more like Jesus? It's a hard question to answer, but it's an important one that we should consider. Um, 
you know, but if we want to be useful instruments, like we looked at last week, in the Redeemer's hands, then we should strive to stand up in whatever sphere of influence we have and, and declare that I'm not perfect, but by God's grace, I am, I'm setting a good example, and I would love for you to follow in my footsteps, right? Could you stand in the midst of your family? Parents, could you stand before your children and say, follow me as I follow the Lord? Or if you're an older sibling and you have brothers and sisters, could you stand and do that as well? All of us should be able to or should strive to do this. Um, could we stand up in our workplace, in our friend group, in um, our classroom, amongst our peers and classmates, perhaps even in a discipleship situation in a life group or just one-on-one with someone else and, and declare like Paul, you have followed in my teaching and my conduct and those sorts of things. I think it's an inspiring thing for us to consider as we're looking at this good example, the right way to follow. But Paul says, follow my example in my teaching and my conduct and my faith and my love. But then he also tells Timothy, follow me in my sufferings. And we're like, wait a second, Paul. Like, I was with you. I'll follow you in the way that you love and you're steadfast. That's great. But you want me to follow you into persecution, into difficulty and and danger and suffering? That doesn't sound all that exciting. And Paul even reminds Timothy of a few examples of how he endured persecution when he was on his missionary journeys at in Lystra. In fact, Timothy was from the town of Lystra where Paul went. And let me just uh, give us a story uh, really quick about what happened there. In Acts 14, we read about what, what persecution Paul faced. It says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and remember he's in Lystra, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Uh, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, trials, difficulties, we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a pretty crazy story. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know what, you know, being stoned is, basically it's when a, gr- a big group of people pick up heavy rocks, sharp stones, and throw them at someone until they're battered and bruised, their bones are shattered, they have internal bleeding, and they, they die from it. It's a horrible way to go. And so they were so angry at him preaching about the gospel that they did this to him, and they thought that they killed him. They're like, yeah, he looks, he looks pretty bad. Just drag him out of the city. I think he's dead. And of course, what we read there is the disciples come up, and what does he do? He just stands up, dusts it off, and goes right back into the city. Like, that's crazy to me. I mean, I, I would have to assume that the Lord preserved him miraculously through this event and healed him of whatever wounds he got, and he went right back into preaching. In fact, then he moved on to the next town, and he made many disciples, and he taught them. And then he went back to that same city where this happened, and he continued to preach the gospel. Uh, it's, it's a crazy situation that he was in. Um, but, but he went there and he was teaching them that, he, that 
that basically to follow the Lord, you must endure tribulations to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so what's clear, though, in Paul's example of persecution as he's des- describing it, is that it is in direct contrast to these earlier people who are lovers of themselves and not lovers of God, right? Those people would never endure persecution for the sake of the gospel. They love comfort and really swindling wealth off the backs of poor people. But, but Paul is not like that at all. And he tells them, Everyone who lives a godly life follows in that footsteps. Verse 12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not might, it's, it's will, and it's not some, it's all, right? All people will endure some level of persecution or difficulty when they follow this right way, following after the Lord. Now, not everyone will endure the same kind of persecution, that's clear. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's very likely that any of us will be the victims of stoning anytime soon, although, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't be that shocked, but I don't think it's going to happen here because of our societal context, right? We have laws that protect us and those sorts of things, but there are many Christians many, many Christians throughout the world who are enduring horrible suffering, who are victims of murder because of their faith. Um, in 2022, last year, Open Doors International, which is a organization, a parachurch organization that works with the persecuted church around the world, put out a report. Uh, they reported that 5,621 Christians were murdered in 2023, or this year so far, because of their faith. And they said that hostile incidents against Christians sent, went up 20% since 2014. So that's a huge increase over the last 9, 10 years. And so this is a real issue that faces many believers around the world. And um, in our context, of course, it may look a lot less violent, but we still face persecution where we are right now. I mean, it's not unlikely that you may lose a job or perhaps lose an opportunity in your work because of your religious convictions. I know that there are several here who have faced that type of difficulty. Or, you know, you're very likely to lose important people in your life. When you become a Christian and your whole life shifts and you're going in a different direction, it's very common that people who are not going to walk with you on that path will turn away from you. You may experience difficulty in that way, loneliness and that kind of thing. Uh, You may even be shunned by family members if they belong to another uh, faith, another religion that is very opposed to Christianity. That is a real danger for many people. And so no matter where we are, all of us in some level, if we seek to live a godly life, will endure some level of difficulty, some level of persecution. But Paul also gives this amazing and wonderful promise through it all in verse 11 where he says, through it all, God rescued me. He rescued me. God never promised us that we wouldn't face difficulty uh, in hard times. I mean, Paul clearly did that, but he absolutely guarantees that he will rescue us all from amidst that difficulty. Now, that might mean that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, he will protect you, uh, perhaps even heal you. That's, it seems, Paul's story, but most certainly it means that he has given us this plan of a rescue, this promise of salvation and eternal life free of suffering. And of course, Paul's confidence comes from the promises of Jesus himself. I'm reminded of Jesus's words in John chapter 16 as he's talking to his disciples about the nature of the the cross that he would have to go and to be murdered. And it's dark times that they're about to face. 
And he says there, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There's that promise again. But here's the hope. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What an amazing promise. When Jesus says he has overcome the world, it gives us hope, right? Because that means that we can overcome the troubles in this world as we trust in him by faith. See, Jesus understood suffering much more than any of us could ever really fathom or understand, right? He left the perfection of heaven, came into this world, and put on this human flesh. He added to his divine nature a human nature and and basically endured all of the sorrows and suffering that all of us humans have to face on a daily basis, pain and sadness and hunger and eventually harsh persecution uh, to the point of murder. He was killed as a criminal as his own people delivered him up as a heretic. His friends abandoned him and left him for dead as he was being murdered there on that hill. And he did this all as a perfect sacrifice, right? Willingly endured the most painful death that we could imagine. But unlike all of us, he did not stay in the grave, right? He overcame sin and death, our greatest enemies, rose again from the dead three days later, showing that there is this plan of rescue. There's an eternal life, an eternal hope. And if we put our faith and our trust in him and turn from following the other loves that are trying to drag us away, then we will experience that life of rescue with him. So Jesus provides a way for us to be rescued by God. That's the message of the gospel that Paul was preaching as he was going around to all of these towns. And it's the same one that we preach and follow. But where do we learn the way? Where do we learn this message? Of course, now we get to the main point. That leads us to the final section. The last few verses, 14 to 17, say this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And that that word whom, you might have a footnote, is actually plural, meaning the sources of what you've learned this are several people and, of course, the scriptures, as he'll say in a moment. Knowing from whom you've learned it um, and how you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What a beautiful set of verses. Of course, it's very famous because it establishes for us some very important truths about this book that we read from and hold every week, right? We've we've seen the wrong way. He lays that out. Then we see the right way. And now this is what distinguishes between those two paths. And so let me highlight a few things. The first is that this verse, this section tells us that scripture is direct communication from God to humanity. The words that we have collected in these sacred writings, as he says, are the very words of God himself. We don't have time to get today to get into the complicated issue of what's called canonization or what is uh, the canon of scripture, which writings are the sacred God-breathed words and which are just great historical writings. Um, If you want to study more on that, you come talk talk to me. We have resources that might help you, uh, but I don't have time to go into that. So suffice it to say that today, for this morning, we need to understand that this whole collection, really it's an anthology of 66 different books written by 40 different authors around about over the course of 50 1,500 years, and yet all of it is 
in sync with one another. It is the clear teaching and words of God himself. Secondly, Scripture is communicated to us through human beings, right? It says God breathed the words, but human authors wrote the words down. And so Peter explains this really well in 2 Peter where he says, Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not men writing their own, um, out of their own initiative, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So particular men were used by God to write his very words down in the vocabulary that they were familiar with, in the languages that they knew, using the type of idioms and the context from which they come from. Some of the books are written in Hebrew, some of them are in Aramaic, some of them are in Greek, some were written on animal skin scrolls, some were written on parchment codex, but all of it was written by God through human authors to us today. And it has been miraculously preserved and transcribed throughout history, unlike any other ancient text that you can put it up against, right? Again, time is short. I can't elaborate too much on this. Let me just give you some bullet points, and if you want to talk more, we can do that. Uh, but here are some, some of the facts. All the historical claims made in the scriptures have been corroborated by modern archaeology. In other words, no modern archaeological find has disproven what the Bible says is historical fact. That, to me, is an amazing thing to think about, uh, evidence that, that happens outside of the scriptures. Also, the Bible has more empirical support, more empirical evidence, and it has a shorter time between the original writings and the most recent surviving copies, their manuscripts, and a great number more source manuscripts than any other ancient work by far. I mean, when you measure it up against things like Homer's Odyssey and other ancient texts that we look at, uh, the histories of Alexander the Great and those sorts of things, they, they may have several hundred copies. The Bible has something like in, in, in the five to 6,000 different manuscripts. And so if we, if we think through all of those things, much smarter people than you and I have spent lifetimes testing the veracity of the Bible, and it has stood the test. It has stood the test of time. So we can and should trust it. Thirdly, uh, the scriptures train us for good works, right? It has a point. There's a reason that God wrote this scriptures for us, and that is that we would be equipped, that we would bring correction as needed. Uh, it has a specific goal, right? The Bible is not going to help you change your brake pads, but it will help you to know God and to love him and to serve others. And so not everything that is true might be in there, but everything in there is true, God's word prepares us to understand him more and to, it leads us to accomplish his, his purposes. So if you're wondering what God's will is for your life, guess what? It's right here. You're holding it. There's one around you. This is God's will for your life. So read it, study it, know it. Um, finally, and most importantly, we'll close with this. The scripture leads us to eternal life, right? The scriptures are the true roadmap to righteousness and to eternal life. Look again at verse 15. It says, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible itself doesn't bring us salvation, but it testifies to the way of salvation, which is faith in Christ Jesus alone. Reading and studying and memorizing God's word is an amazing way to spend your time. It will be very fruitful for you, but only if it leads you to put your faith and your trust in God's one and only son, right? There are many people who have spent their lives 
studying the words of Scripture in a scholastic way, just looking at it, but never embracing the person of Jesus and God himself, right? They learned a lot of fun facts about theology and historical uh, details about the people of Israel or the customs of the ancient Near East, but they never put their trust in the person of Jesus. They're like, as verse uh, 7 says, these people who are always learning, but they're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's that kind of Bible reading that leads people to have an appearance of godliness, but denying the power of the gospel. So as you study the scriptures, as we study the scriptures, as we preach the scriptures, and as you listen and and partake in that, recognize that you're encountering the very words of God, right? This is the roadmap toward righteousness. So make sure that the teaching of scripture doesn't just remain in, in your mind, but that it works its way down into your hearts and then into your hands as you get to work and follow the Lord in in his calling to love and serve others and to put into practice these things. So in order to avoid the wrong way and follow the right way, we must trust in God's way through his scripture and through faith in his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have provided for us that you're not a God who is silent, you're a God who speaks. You speak to us through your scriptures. You have miraculously preserved these wonderful words that we can study and we can be corrected, that we can bring reproof, that we can be trained in righteousness so that we may love you and love our neighbor. And so we pray that as we've been studying these things, we would be cautious of the wrong way, that we would be mindful of the right way, and that we know that the only way that we can see that is through your words and spending time with you in genuine prayer and study. And so we ask that you would help us to do that better as a church. We ask that you would be with us in that, in Jesus' name, amen.